This week on the show, Amazon absolutely crushes the late holiday shopping season, but there are some obstacles looming on the horizon. We've got some updates from the Postal Service and eBay, and we're going to take a deep dive into whether or not Etsy can recapture the magic. What is up, Galaxians? Welcome to episode number 232 of the Galaxy CDs Rocks and Flips Reseller Talk podcast. My name is Ryan, and I will be your host as we wade through a pretty hefty update in the news this week. We've got some stuff from the Postal Service. We're going to take a quick look at some of the stuff that went on kind of at the tail end of the third quarter. Uh, We've got some updates from Etsy eBay, and more. And then we're going to take a dive into a pretty lengthy article that appeared over on spy.com about Etsy and the problems over there and whether or not they can ever recapture the magic. So, and then at the back end, of course, we'll have a pretty big what sold segment since it's been a couple of weeks since I was here. I hope everybody had a great holiday and enjoyed uh, time with friends and family. I did talk about uh, at the last episode Whether or not to do uh, channel memberships here on YouTube, if you happen to be watching on YouTube. And I did have some people reach out and say that they would uh, potentially join. So I have opened up memberships. It is live now if you'd like to sign up. Uh, You will get early access to all future podcasts only on YouTube, of course. So if you're not currently a subscriber, uh, please consider doing that. And then uh, obviously, if you would like to support the channel in some small way, uh, memberships are available as well. With that bit of housekeeping out of the way, let's do this reselling news. News updates. We're going to start with uh, a, a notice that went out from Pirate Ship to users of Pirate Ship. I talk about them pretty regularly on this channel. So uh, we talked about a couple of months ago that there were rate changes coming. In late January, the 21st, they will go into effect that we're going to affect most of the categories of shipping. Pirate Ship sent out this memo to kind of summarize them, and I thought I would share it with you today. They've announced some new rates for anything shipped on or after January 21st, and the good news is a lot of rates are actually getting cheaper. There is a link to the rate table, which I will include uh, in the show notes and the video description below, but they do have a quick summary. Priority mail flat rate secret discounts, which is something that Pirate Ship had been passing along that had been removed a short time ago, are coming back. Rates will be up to $2.34 cheaper than commercial pricing, which is good news. Priority mail continues to be the best service, they say, getting up to $16 and a penny cheaper for packages that weigh less than 20 pounds, depending on the size of the package and the distance it's traveling. So that is also good news if you use a lot of priority mail for bigger packages. Ground advantage is going to go up slightly, about 29 cents more expensive for packages that weigh less than a pound. For packages that weigh between 1 and 20 pounds, it's mostly staying the same, they say, though it is getting cheaper for shipments to the farthest, farthest distances. So if you do a lot of shipping to what's considered the furthest zones, 7, 8, that sort of thing, those prices supposedly are going down a little bit, which again is good news. Media mail rates are increasing by up to 21 cents. This is going to be a little bit interesting because right now, under four ounces, ground advantage is actually cheaper than media mail for shipping this stuff. So once these new rates go into effect, you'll probably want to take a look, another look at that and see on packages, say, under eight ounces, whether ground advantage works out to be cheaper or media mail for those items that qualify, of course, 
is going to be the cheaper option. So changes afoot there that you'll want to be on the lookout for. Signature confirmation is increasing to $3.50 and international shipping rates are increasing around 5 to 7% on average. Uh, they have a link again to a full article that details all the rate changes and I will include that in the video description and the show notes below as well. This article over on eSeller365 talks about the holiday season tally e-commerce thrives on discounts, uh, buy now, pay later, and mobile shopping. So these are just some of the trends that they have teased out of the data for shopping for the fourth quarter. This was done by Adobe Analytics, who do a lot of reviews of this sort of information. Feasting on deals, discounts fueled the holiday season. Americans spent a record $221.1 billion online during the 2023 holiday season, which was $10.4 billion more than last year. So a big jump. Consumers were craving bargains that drove sales across major categories from electronics, which averaged 31% off, and toys, which were up to 28% off discounts. They note hit record highs. It was a very successful season. Cyber Week, the five days between Thanksgiving and Cyber Monday, saw a whopping $38 billion in online spending, which was up nearly 8% over last year. Black Friday and Cyber Monday continued their reign as shopping extravaganzas, with 11 days throughout the season surpassing $4 billion a day in daily spending, which is just huge. (laughs) Uh, By now, pay later, spreading the joy. And unfortunately, the debt, I did an episode on this a few weeks ago. Uh, how crushing consumer debt levels could affect online sales and reselling as we go forward into 2024. And a lot of folks have extended themselves even further through the holiday shopping season. The rise of buy now, pay later is undeniable. This holiday season, it contributed a staggering $16.6 billion to online spending, which was up 14% over last year. November, they note, was the biggest month. Cyber Monday shattered a single-day record with $940 million on that day alone in spending through buy now, pay later. Consumers appear to embrace the flexibility, especially during pressure cooker holiday shopping environment. However, the long-term implications, as I just mentioned, of mounting buy now, pay later debt remain a concern. Eventually, the well runs dry. If you don't get the thing paid off, uh, lenders will stop advancing you money and then the whole thing shuts down. So it's definitely something to be cognizant of as we move forward into 2024. Interestingly, also, uh, this has been a trend that has been accelerating over the past few years, but mobile became the king of the shopping cart. The smartphone finally dethroned the desktop this holiday season, claiming 51.1% of online sales which was up from 47% last year. Christmas Day, in particular, saw mobile dominance at its peak with 63% of online orders coming through smartphones. This trend, they note, underscores the importance of mobile-first strategies for online merchants. All of them have embraced this, from Mercari to eBay to Etsy. They're always working on kind of mobile-first and then shoehorning those features into their desktop app. I know a lot of folks who list particularly on eBay, on desktop, are not happy because of the way that integration has taken place. But this is just further proof that mobile is increasingly becoming the king. So that's just some of the high-level stuff. Uh, One particular thing to note, Amazon, uh, as I'm sure no one is super surprised about, captured a huge portion, particularly of the very late Holiday shopping season sales, 29% of online orders that took place within the few days right before Christmas were captured 
by Amazon. Uh, a huge amount. Amazon.com Inc.'s share of online orders spiked in the final days of the holiday shopping se- season, this article notes, demonstrating how big investments in delivery speed have paid off with procrastinating shoppers looking for a wide selection of products they could get quickly. We've talked over the last couple of episodes on this show about Amazon's push to change their distribution network to have more merchandise closer to more customers so that they could increase their shipping speed. It's made it difficult, particularly for FBA sellers, but one of the upsides has been that they were able to capture a huge chunk of the late Christmas shopping business. Amazon captured 29% of global order volume in the final two weeks before Christmas, which was up from 21% the week of Thanksgiving and Black Friday, according to Route, which is a package tracking app that captured holiday season data from 55 million orders. It's a pretty sharp shift in how consumers shop, said Michael Yamaratino, Route's chief executive officer. The top priority in the days leading up to Christmas, of course, is on-time delivery. And when Amazon says it will take two days, it only takes two days. It's a combination of speed and confidence. Uh, If you're watching on YouTube, you can see this chart of their increasing sales throughout the course of the holiday season and how they just essentially dominated that last couple of weeks right before Christmas. So... Uh, As we talked about previously, Amazon CEO Andy Jassy has touted the speedy delivery as key to their competitive advantage, saying shoppers are more inclined to buy something if they can get it quickly. It has made it more difficult and more expensive for FBA third-party sellers, uh, but it has definitely had the impact that they wanted on their bottom line. However, (laughs) uh, not all is well. Over on Amazon, uh, we, I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but there were there's been a lot of banning of third party sellers going on over at Amazon, and some of those folks have now launched lawsuits or are trying to find legal ways to get their accounts back. And one of the things that this has highlighted, according to this article over on E-commerce Bytes, is that shoppers are disparaging obscure brands and sellers on Amazon. An article about Amazon sellers who are seeking legal help over suspensions revealed some interesting attitudes from consumers in the comments section about third-party sellers on the platform. Shoppers aren't necessarily happy with what one seller characterized as a, quote, massive proliferation of obscure sellers. Even FBA sellers whose items ship from Amazon fulfillment centers are suspect, said one commenter. I don't touch anything that's a weird brand for anything that matters. Sorry, not trusting random letters like ETGUUDS for something I connect to my $1,200 phone, despite its 50,000 reviews. (laughs) Uh, And this is a, a trend that you've seen. If you shop on Amazon at all, you'll see the same or what appears to be essentially the same item from eight or 10 or 12 different quote unquote brands, all who have these random names that do not appear to have had their origin in the English language. (laughs) Uh, And it does make you suspect. You've never heard of this company before. You can't spell it. You can't pronounce it. You have no idea what or who they are. There's a certain amount of trust that historically has just been passed along because it's you're buying it on Amazon. But according to this, that trust has begun to erode. Almost everything that turns up after a search is just some face roll on keyboard name, one Amazon shopper said. I don't really want fly-by-night products or sellers that are likely to be gone. In a few weeks, Amazon very much has a product trust issue from my perspective, even when the products themselves may well be the same as the name brand stuff. And again, this goes back to third-party sellers who are essentially buying the same item and putting their own brand on it as other items. It may be the exact same piece, but 
if if yours is a well-known brand and the other one is I got goods, which one are you going to buy? And that is where this is all leading. He goes on to say, and I hate that I don't have a good way to view strictly trusted or real product, quote, brand things. So that the article appeared over on ARS Technica. And again, there will be a link to all of this down in the show notes and the video description below. So that's interesting. It presents potentially a problem for Amazon, and it may be one of the reasons they are cracking down on some of these third-party sellers and issuing suspensions and outright bans. Speaking of uh, <laughs> suspending things, Etsy has shut access to their discussion boards in the name of security. This article also on e-commerce bytes. Three days after uh, e-commerce bites pointed out a potential issue that helps fraudsters scam new Etsy sellers, the marketplace announced it would limit access to most discussion boards where sellers openly share information about scammers as well as many other issues. The decision to wall off the Etsy discussion boards means that reporters and bloggers in particular will be unable to spot trends and gain insight into sellers' successes and failures on the marketplace. This, of course, assumes that they are not registered users of Etsy. And it will make it harder for us to discover issues like the one we described in their January 1st blog post. In it, we pointed to three discussions on the Etsy boards where sellers described being contacted by scammers posing as Etsy customer support reps as soon as they had registered their new seller accounts before they had even listed any items to sell. In an unprecedented move, Etsy announced today that only people signed into a selling account will be able to view posts in the discussion boards with the exception of the announcement and technical issue boards, which will remain visible to everyone. So if you are not registered as a seller on Etsy, according to this, you no longer have access to view any of the message boards with the exception of announcements and technical issues, which is crazy that they have walled off that much information. They go on to say it's a stretch to think that closing the forums to unregistered sellers would make sellers more secure. Etsy made no mention of any actions it would take to prevent scammers from registering for seller accounts so they could access these forums. There's nothing to prevent a potential scammer for signing up for a seller account and then jumping on the boards and doing what they're already trying to do. So I don't know that this is a long-term solution. It may be a stopgap measure until they find some way to actually manage their boards. But given that they just laid off a whole bunch of people over there, (laughs) I don't know if they have the manpower to actually do that. Uh, They did make one announcement uh, to improve securities for buyers, but not for sellers. We're limiting the buyer info. Some integrations can access using our public API, which is the software essentially that a third party would use to integrate their software with Etsy. Many companies use the Etsy API to build tools and services for Etsy sellers. We call those integrations to help protect shoppers' privacy. We're putting some additional limits on the buyer info we share with these third parties. We've reviewed this info carefully to ensure we limit the impact on the tools you depend on to run your business. Any sellers impacted by this change will receive an email from Etsy this week about the changes we're making. In another example of Etsy's push for secrecy, when a seller pasted the text of this letter they received about the API changes on the discussion boards, an Etsy moderator immediately deleted it and referred to the following policy, which I was not aware of, but frankly does not surprise me. (laughs) Do not use... Community spaces to discuss interactions with Etsy representatives or to share verbatim extracts of such conversations, i.e. emails, DMs, or messages, live chats, etc. Remember, most messages between you and Etsy are considered private correspondence, and we ask that you respect this confidentiality. Please refer to our privacy policy for more information. So... 
they are they don't want you sharing anything that they say to you with others at least on their message boards, which is why I think a lot of people go to the various Facebook groups and other non-affiliated boards to post their various rants. So that's really interesting. You can let me know. I have not seen anything. I don't use really any APIs, but if you had, if you received this email from Etsy, you can let me know down in the comments below uh, how that's affected you, if at all. eBay uh, put out a apparently a pretty massive blog post to remind shoppers that Etsy is not the only place for vintage. And we're going to get into why that is the case uh, in the deep dive we're going to do into Etsy. But this is a really interesting, the timing on this was uh, very closely aligned with the article that we're going to cover next. So this is kind of shots fired across the bow of Etsy by eBay to try to recapture some of that vintage business. eBay published a long blog post about the popularity of vintage goods, such as housewares and furniture, a reminder to collectors that Etsy isn't the only source of vintage goods. In the post, which was published last Thursday, eBay dropped some interesting stats about the rise in prices for certain items. This highlights a few of those. They revealed that the average sale price for vintage IKEA items has more than doubled since 2015. The average sale price for Eames product has, in the same time, gone from $122 to $200. Though Fiestaware has never been expensive, it has been a major presence both internationally and not in the secondary market. Today, there are over 200,000 annual listings on eBay for Fiestaware, up significantly from just 189,000 back in 2020. In 2015, they note there were just under 3,800 listings for vintage Dansk. In 2023, it's up to over 73,000. And lighting fixtures in particular, are popular on eBay. Searches for vintage IKEA lamp have more than doubled since 2021, and the average sale price, they note, on the online marketplace has increased from $27 to $44 in 2023. So eBay is out to try to recapture not only some of the sellers, but some of the buyers who have migrated over to Etsy to find vintage goods. I, as a seller of vintage books, list on both sites, I do much, much better over on eBay, though my average ticket price is significantly higher over on Etsy, something we will see uh, when we get into the what sold segment here in a little bit. But now I really want to dive into this article uh, at some length. So bear with me on this. Uh, hopefully you find it as interesting as I did. This was written by Jason Lalji over on spy.com, the fall of the house of Etsy. We've talked about Etsy and their growing pains over the last couple of months on this show. And this article really does a good job of kind of summarizing what's what has changed with Etsy and whether there's any way for them to undo the damage that they've done. I'm not completely convinced that there is, but this article says between 2005 and the fall of 2021, Etsy built a $37 billion empire built on personalized coasters, dog-themed Christmas ornaments, and bootleg Taylor Swift merch. On November 23rd, 2021, in the midst of the pandemic that saw the reemergence of a kind of craft-driven cottage industry the company had aggregated onto its platform, share prices sat at an all-time high of $296.91, and the biggest concern that many investors had was that the employee perks were too good. Fast forward to today. Share prices sit below $80, having fallen 30% just in November. A big part of that was tied to their announcement of the big layoff and their announcement that they expected flat to negative growth for not only fourth quarter, but also for 2024. So 
they recognize that they are having some issues there and it has drastically impacted their stock price. Concerns run towards seller revolts due to Etsy changing rules and the financial hole left by their $217 million acquisition of LO7, which they have subsequently sold, as we discussed a couple of months ago, and the $1.625 billion acquisition of Depop back in 2021, both of which were viewed by many as overpriced. They still hold uh, Depop in addition to, I believe, Reverb, the uh, kind of music third-party used goods site. So they do have more than just the the Etsy brand in their portfolio, uh, but they did spend a bunch of money to acquire Depop. However, they note Etsy has solid operating margin, has generated north of $650 million in cash over the previous 12 months. So what's the real problem? Why does it feel, this writer says, like the end of an empire? The answer, he says, is simple. Etsy kind of sucks. (laughs) A phrase with a touch more subtlety, he goes on, Etsy no longer feels like a differentiated and buyer-friendly environment. And he points out five particular reasons for this. Number one, drop shippers. Ubiquitous on the internet are all over the platform. Rather than selling the handcrafted products, these vendors act as middlemen, which is precisely the kind of person that Etsy was designed to cut out of the market. This is, he notes, the kind of person that messes up the flea market. So this is people that are buying things on, you know, Alibaba or whatever it is, uh, and then trying to resell them sometimes disingenuously as handcrafted items on a site like Etsy. The other big problem, and we've talked about this on several occasions, is counterfeit goods constitute an increasing percentage of products offered. Etsy is trying like crazy to cut down on this, but they're not having great success. Earlier this year, the firm Citron Research claimed Etsy was one of the biggest counterfeit distributors. Etsy has only exacerbated the problem by allowing vendors to buy AdWords of brands. So what that means is you can pay to have the keyword, whatever it would be, Gucci, Nike, whatever, and searches for that keyword will then trigger your item to be shown, even if it's counterfeit. So that is obviously a real problem for them. The SKUs on-platform search turns towards those focused on arbitrage rather than value creation. Three, small sellers are leaving. And I hear this all the time from sellers over on Etsy. They're going somewhere else. This, they note, may not actually be Etsy's fault. The conditions of the pandemic were singular, and many of the folks who decided they really wanted to spend their lives crocheting portraits of other people's cats <laughs> have subsequently changed their minds. And I've talked about that on more than one occasion, too, just at uh, about reselling at large, that people who got in during the pandemic when most everything was shut down were participating in the heyday of reselling. And now that it has become hard and a job, a lot of these folks have kind of fallen by the wayside and have moved on to something else. So this particular one may not necessarily be Etsy's problem, although it does obviously affect what their core mission statement was when these small actual artisan craft makers do leave the site. It just means that there's that much more of this kind of third-party arbitrage stuff over on Etsy. He goes on to point out also that large sellers are also leaving. Mandatory opt-ins to advertisements led to an exodus of the bigger sellers in 2020. Etsy started automatically advertising on sellers' behalf with most shops obligated to pay Etsy a cut. Vendors making more than $10,000 annually were not allowed to opt out. This is something I've talked about uh, over the last few episodes. This is essentially 
Etsy's off-site ad program. The biggest problem with it is that the commission for that off-site ad being successful is 15% in addition to all of their core fees, which at times takes the total transaction percentage upwards of 26-28%, which is a huge, huge bite if you're working on fairly constrained margins. Particularly, again, if your item happens to sell overseas, where that 15% also gets charged on the crazy shipping prices. I had I had a book, for instance, <laughs> last week that I sold on Etsy to a guy in Australia. The book was $14, uh, but it was sold through the off-site ad program. Shipping was like 40-odd dollars. I made like a dollar and a quarter on the book but by the time it was all said and done. So I didn't lose any money, but I certainly didn't make what I could have because of that off-site ad fee. So it has cost sellers money. It has made Etsy, I'm sure, a a decent amount of money, but it has cost them sellers. Sellers have left the platform. And lastly, Etsy is no longer a unique platform. What made Etsy unique, the moat in venture capital terms, is its scale and the network effects that scale provides. But the actual two-sided marketplace element of the business all of that code, the the back end, the software, is now easily replicable and can be basically bought off the shelf by new challengers and niche operators in the space. He points out, the problem needs to be understood in the context of the solution Etsy first provided. Back in the early 2000s, there was really no way for a maker to reach an audience beyond the local farmer's market. He notes, yes, eBay existed, but it was impractical. It has a high barrier to entry, something we have talked about ad nauseum on this show. One of the reasons that eBay is trying to introduce AI into things like listing descriptions and so on to lower that bar of entry for newer sellers, but it was still a high barrier and also a fairly low return on investments because their fees are substantially higher, particularly than what Etsy's fees were at the beginning before they raised them, whatever it was, a year and a half ago. Craigslist was also available, but it was a low barrier and an unreliable return. Etsy changed all of that and so doing created a bigger market for handmade and custom-made goods. And Etsy was, and he says, arguably still is the real deal. The company only allows, at least by their terms of service, homemade, vintage, or craft items, rule breakers notwithstanding. The overarching issue, they point out, now seems to be perverse incentives. Etsy gets a percentage of the profits of the sellers who are actually undermining its mission. One investigation from the consumer testing site, which this year found that Etsy sellers were passing off items as homemade, but sourcing them from Amazon, Asda, and the discount chain B&M. The perverse incentive is, of course, that as Etsy allows those sellers to sell those items on their site, they make money from the various fees. So it's almost a disincentive for them to really try to weed those people out unless, of course, they make the decision to downsize their marketplace. Uh, He goes on to point out there are a lot of aspirational sellers who come to Etsy and realize that after a few months they're losing money selling a bunch of products for cheaper than they need to. Matt Chancy, a private equity consultant, told Spy, when you start charging $30 for things, you start to go head-to-head with real retailers. In some cases, those are people like us who are resellers but who treat this as an actual business. You need quality. You need a return policy. You need warranties, reward systems, customer service departments. That's not what mom-and-pop seller was intended to do, and people make the swap to the quality vendor. So that's one of the reasons I harp so much on my show about the importance 
of offering returns and having policies and procedures in place that you can follow as a as a business that will enhance your image and your reputation on these marketplaces because you are going up against some professionals and some actual businesses. And if you're not prepared to do that, you may end up getting overlooked. Basically, it's hard for small sellers on Etsy to compete with large retail operations, especially at the price point small sellers need to keep their business viable. We have to sell the stuff, theoretically, for a little bit more money because we've invested significant amounts of time and labor. We're not buying Again, if you're doing this the way Etsy intended, pre-manufactured goods and just trying to resell them, you're actually investing time and effort and money into creating these items. Etsy hasn't helped its sellers by eroding trust through delayed payments. We talked about this when it happened. The Silicon Valley Bank collapse caused Etsy to delay payments to a lot of sellers, which was a real problem. That has been resolved, but it does leave a bad taste in sellers' mouths. In other words, Etsy is currently, and he notes, things can change, driving away the sellers that actually make the quality products. The dynamic is not dissimilar to the dynamic around Facebook content. The handmade stuff, hot takes on family reunions and commentary on PTA meetings, has started to disappear as the internal ad sales business became a key profit driver over on Facebook. A vicious cycle is created. Etsy consumers buy from lower quality vendors. They get bad products, maybe bad service, and become skeptical of the whole enterprise because Etsy products are, as Chansey puts it skeptically, cute, but not the sort of durable goods that belong in a household budget. Customers just leave. That is definitely the case for many resellers and particularly craft makers. The stuff we offer is not must-have. In a down economy or when a, a site seems to be untrustworthy, people just won't buy those things. So it's really important that they get their arms around this. They also note, and this is something I've talked about previously as well, Etsy listing on the stock exchange transformed it into a company that needed to grow and grow fast so as to be able to satisfy its shareholders. I've talked a couple of times about how changes that have been implemented They always refer to creating shareholder value, not enhancing either the buyer or the seller experience or their ability to either make or save money. It's always about the shareholder and their expected return on investment. When there's a push for growth that is not commensurate with the initial values of the company, misalignment is bound to appear. She adds uh, that in order to scale, Etsy allowed in sellers that had nothing to do with its original community and the values that bound them together. They point to the small nation of print-to-order sellers. I do some print-to-order. I don't do a ton of it, but I know there are some sellers who are making mad, mad amounts of money doing print-on-demand t-shirts and mugs and that sort of thing. And that, while closely aligned to Etsy's original mission, is not exactly what they had in mind with actual handcrafted items. And it's caused, again, that perverse incentive where the more of that stuff that sells the more Etsy is able to make, but the quality of those items can be a little hit or miss depending on the designer and who actually manufactures it. So you get into this vicious cycle of, again, customers having a bad experience and just leaving the platform altogether. They note that makers will look for alternatives, smaller, still private, and functioning based on authenticity and trust as Etsy used to do. There's been a sharp increase in the number of e-commerce marketplaces over the last few years, and those marketplaces have attracted a lot of sellers. The problem, of course, is that they haven't all attracted a lot of buyers, and that's where you've got to have the critical mass. If you have hundreds of sellers and no buyers, 
It doesn't matter. Nobody makes any money. So attracting buyers and keeping them needs to be the core of kind of their mission. Uh, the Artisans Cooperative, which updates an ongoing list of Etsy alternatives, endorses marketplaces that they say have hit a, quote, critical mass of consumers. This critical mass, they note, equals a viable customer base. It's an indicator that the site can attract serious business, but as Chansey emphasizes, a large number of sellers is not necessarily that important. The number of buyers is ultimately what matters. And as I just said, this writer agrees, and it is, Etsy will almost certainly have to change course. Chansey imagines a future in which Etsy intentionally downscales, right-sizing its seller network in order to bring back loyal buyers. Get rid of the counterfeiters. Get rid of the drop shippers. Maybe even consider undoing the unholy alliance they've made <laughs> with print-on-demand sellers who are technically still designing individual items, but they're not handmade or vintage items. And that is, you could make the argument uh, that it's very closely aligned to their mission, but not completely aligned with it. And it may be something that they need to consider cutting out. The question is, of course, whether Etsy can do this before a smaller marketplaces get their hooks into all of those knitwear enthusiasts. So that is a bunch to digest. I hope you found it interesting. I found the article to be really a, a fascinating look at where Etsy has gone wrong. I think the big thing that you can point to is when they went public, their incentives changed. It becomes much more about how you make the most money you can make. It causes you to do things differently, change your fee structures, allow in items that you would not previously allowed in to try to grow your business. And it has created a situation where both buyers and sellers, both of whom are the life's blood of these companies, are leaving to try to find alternatives. So if you're watching on YouTube, you can let me know down in the comments below what you think of this, what what your prognostication is for uh, what the future might be over at Etsy and whether or not you think they either can or will write the ship. With that all having been said, uh, let's do uh, let's talk about some stuff I sold, including a few things on Etsy. So uh, someone reached out in the comments on, uh, I think on the last episode and asked if there was any way that I could make the, the photos on YouTube of the items in the what sold bigger. So I did try to crop and blow these up a little bit. Hopefully you can see them a little bit better. The way I have this set up on StreamYard, unfortunately, if you're watching on a small device, they're only going to get so big. I try to do this all one take, one shot without a lot of post editing of adding in like these images. So hopefully this has helped you. Thank you for the for pointing it out that they were small. And you can let me know in the comments <laughs> if this is uh, enough of an improvement for you. This first item sold over on eBay, Gear Problems and IXL Speed Reducers, a Foot Brothers catalog number 202 from 1928. This was part of a big lot of books that I own for about 16 cents a piece. Uh, I've had it for quite a while. It was listed for $29.99 or best offer. It's in my current 20% off offering and sold for $23.99 plus shipping. Neat old catalog, leather bound in actually really, really nice shape. 
I've talked about the estate sale that I went to where I picked up all the Western books. Uh, gosh, probably six weeks or so ago. This is another one of those. Harvey Kaplan's Real Cowboys and the Old West by Abby Kaplan. It was from 2010, an illustrated hardcover with its dust jacket. Really nice, big, like coffee table sized book in excellent condition. Uh, own it for $2. It sold for $24.99 plus media mail shipping over on eBay. For sale on Etsy for the week. This was part of my 10% off sale in uh, December. Dictionary of the Bible Extra Volume with Indexes from 1905 was uh, edited by James Hastings. It was a Scribner's edition. Big book. Probably 12 by 8 by about almost 4 inches thick. Part of a large volume. I did not get a complete set when I bought these at an estate sale Gosh, back in the spring, I think I had, I think there were a total of maybe eight volumes in this whole thing, and I only had five of them, so I listed them individually for $27.99. This sold with the offer at $25.19 plus shipping. I posted over on Instagram, uh, shameless plug, at Galaxy CDs Rocks, if you're not following me over there, that I had uh, was in the process of listing a huge collection that I bought of Seventh-day Adventists books, a lot of them written by Ellen G. White. Some of them have already started to sell this first one, The Faith I Live By by Ellen G. White. This was a 1958 edition published by the Review and Herald Publishing Company, a hardcover with its dust jacket. Had it listed for $29.99. It got a watcher. I sent out my 15% off offer and sold it for $25.49. This book has a cost of goods sold of one thin dollar. Uh, another book from that same purchase. So this is another one that I got for a dollar from Sabbath to Sunday by Samuel uh, Bakiochi. It was printed in 1977 by the Pontifical Gregorian Press. Hardcover in fantastic condition. Another one that I own for a dollar that sold for $29.99 plus media mail shipping. I w- I've talked about old railroad stuff pretty regularly, and I will usually, unless they're asking like crazy money for them, I'll usually snap up as much of it as I can find, even old VHS tapes, because some of these old railroad fans will eventually buy these things. I picked up a pretty good sized lot of old vintage VHS railroading cassettes, videos. Gosh, probably back in the summer. Uh, this was the Union Pacific Railroad Challenger 3985. was uh, done by a company called Gandy Dancer back in 1991. It's a, essentially a video of this steam engine. VHS videos can still do pretty well. This I picked up, again, for about a dollar. It sold for $29.99 plus shipping. Uh, old military books I typically do quite well with. This was Naval Leadership with some hints to junior officers and others. It was a fourth edition book pre-World War II. It was published back in 1939. Had it listed for $44.99. was in my 20% off offering and sold for $35.99 plus media mail shipping. This was part of a big lot of books that I own for less than five cents. I picked up some... Uh, old movie magazines at an estate sale maybe three months ago. I paid 50 cents a piece for these magazines and most of them have sold for kind of that eight to $10 range, not really big deals, but this one actually brought pretty good money. Rocky three, the official movie magazine, a star log press book from 1982 featuring of course, Sylvester Stallone, 50 cents turned into 39 99 plus shipping. 
The House with the Mezzanine and Other Stories by Anton Chekhov. This was written, published in 1917. It was a first edition hardcover in reasonably good condition for that age. Again, another book that was in my 20% off offering. Another book from that massive lot that I own for less than a nickel. Uh, had it listed for $49.99 with the discount it sold for $39.99 plus media mail shipping. Back over to Etsy. Uh, I, I was at a garage sale back in the summer that had some old, um, again, religious books. I picked them all up for like 50 cents a piece. Most of them were paperbacks. This person bought a set of three and one individual book, Outline Studies from the Testimonies by Clifton Taylor from 1955 and Adventist Layman's League Crusade for Christ Bible Study Guides, Volumes 1 through 3, published in 1971. So, again, older vintage religious books can do really well. This was four books that I own for virtually nothing, 50 cents or a dollar a piece. They sold in total for $43.18. Continuing on Etsy. Misericordia Readers, first reader from 1936 by the Sisters of Mercy. This was a illustrated, essentially a reader, a textbook for elementary school kids from the 1930s. This was something I picked up at an estate sale recently for $2 and sold for $44.99. This was a full price sale over on Etsy. Uh, another book, a Bible that I picked up at an estate sale for $2, uh, King James Version World Heritage Reference Bible. Uh, the study helps were written by HMS Richards. Black leather Bible in its box from what appeared to be maybe the 1970s era. Picked it up for a couple of dollars, sold for $44.99 plus shipping. Very unusual old textbook, The Banking and Credit System of the USSR, the Soviet Union. This was uh, Tilburg Studies in Economics, was published back in 1978. I've had this thing for a long, long time. I picked it up in a big bundle of textbooks for a couple of dollars a piece, probably coming up on two years ago. This was in my 40% off sale. It was listed for $79.99 and sold for $47.99, which is still a pretty nice flip. Uh, another old book, Love Me, Love Me Not by Phyllis Whitney. Uh, this is a really rare library edition of this book in the library binding, uh, published again in 1952. Ex-library book. It did have the, some library markings on it. It was in fairly mediocre condition, as you would expect, a, a book of that age that had been a library book. I got a really nice uh, message from the buyer she had apparently been looking for this book for a very, very long time and finally found it in my eBay store. This was part of a big lot of children's old vintage children's and romance books that I bought at an estate sale for $2 a piece back in the summer. This sold for $79.99 plus shipping. And now your flip of the week. I, I think I had one volume of this set that I featured some time back. Uh, a sale on Etsy. These were the Waverly novels. And I had it, it was a, a set of 12 books that I bought at an estate sale that there were only 11 of the 12 volumes available when I bought them. So I had them all listed individually for $27.99 on eBay and Etsy. And I had a buyer that bought one of those volumes some time ago on Etsy for $27.99. He reached out to me last week and said, hey, I bought this book from you a while ago. It looks like you have some more. Can you tell me how many you have and what kind of price you would do for all of them? 
So I sent him a message. I said, I still have 10 volumes of this available. I've got them listed for $27.99. I'll do essentially 20% off. So call it $219.99 for the 10 volumes, $21.99 a piece for all 10. And obviously I'll ship them all in one box. So you'll get some pretty good savings on the shipping as well. He said he would do that. I do have an automated system on Etsy where a customer who makes a purchase automatically gets a coupon for a future purchase for 10% off. He obviously had that and used that coupon. So these 10 old books that I own for about two bucks a piece sold for $197.99. So essentially $19.79, $19.80 a piece for books that I own for two bucks. And I sold them all at once. Nice, quick, easy, super transaction. I shipped them out. I want to say on Tuesday or Wednesday, he received them on Friday, has already left feedback, loves them. Really nice way to uh, kick off January. January historically for my business has been better than December. It's not off to quite the same start. I went back and looked and I had some pretty big electronic sales at the beginning of January of last year that I'm competing against. So I'm a little bit off the pace from last January, but I'm running ahead of the pace that I was setting for December once again. So January still looks like it's going to be a very good month. December for me, uh, again, was my best December in my business's history. So dating back to July, I've only had one month in the last six that was not the best month year over year in my company's history. And that month was the second best month. So it has been uh, it closed out 2023 in fantastic fashion. 2024 has started off pretty well. So I'm I'm really pleased with how things are going. I know there's a lot of... <laughs> You see it all the time on the message boards and, you know, the article we just talked about on Etsy, you know, sellers are leaving and sellers are complaining. But again, for my small corner of the reselling world, business is actually quite, quite good right now. And I hope yours is as well. Uh, as always, I thank you for spending a little bit of your day with me. Uh, thank you for uh, being patient as we skipped last week. There just wasn't really anything to talk about, but we've made up for it today. I'm coming up on 45 minutes here. So <laughs> uh, if you got something out of this and you're watching on YouTube, please do me a favor and hit that thumbs up button. If you're not currently a follower of the podcast or a subscriber to the YouTube channel, please consider doing that as well. Memberships are, as I mentioned, also available now. So if you'd like to sign up for that, there are a few little perks in there, including getting this episode uh, essentially immediately upon it being edited and uploaded. Uh, those of you who are not members will still get it at the normal time, which typically is Monday morning. Uh, and I think that's going to put a wrap on it. Uh, again, thank you so much for hanging out with me, and we'll see you next time. You have been listening to the Galaxy CDs Rocks and Flips Reseller Talk podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we will catch you again next time.